This week, we discuss extinction events, the conflict between cannabis farmers and wine producers, and the future of cannabis in the next decade. Coming up right now on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Natalie Darvis and I live in Portland, Oregon. I have a cannabis business strategy consulting firm, Cougar Acres Consulting, and I am also the Dean of Faculty at Oaksterdam University in Oakland, California, which is the premier education center for cannabis in the world. A little deep house track for you there, titled Portland, by an artist that goes by the name of Fofa, with a couple of PHs thrown in there for your spelling convenience. As you have just heard, our interview for this very special 420 podcast will be with Natalie Darvis, but before we jump into that, I wanted to quickly apologize for the extended break we took over the past several weeks. We had to do some maintenance work and collect some new material to bring to you my esteemed audience, and as a result, we have loads of interesting guests and exciting topics to get through over the course of the next couple of months, so your patience will most definitely be rewarded. I also wanted to take a moment to mention that we are launching a Patreon pledge campaign. So far, the Critical Grass podcast has been ad-free, and the aim is to keep it that way. However, modern life is not free, what with web domain fees, archive fees, equipment maintenance and upgrades, travel expenses, and so on. As a result, we have decided to ask for direct support from our listeners to help sustain and grow the podcast. So if you have a moment and are feeling a little generous, please check out the Critical Grass podcast page on Patreon to support the show. We highly appreciate your pledges, no matter how big or small. Back to this week's interview, Natalie Darvis is currently Dean of Faculty at Oaksterdam University, America's very first hands-on cannabis training facility, and, at least for now, the world's leading cannabis college with over 40,000 alumni worldwide, including yours truly. When not teaching at Oaksterdam University, Natalie uses her Master Gardener certification and MBA degree in her consulting firm Cougar Acres, where she focuses on various corporate and small business projects in the cannabis industry, as well as the wine sector, something we will be discussing in a few short minutes. She has worked alongside numerous cultivation groups on policy reform and best practice farming models, including serving as the assistant inspector for the first U.S. cannabis regulation program. 
All in all, Natalie knows her stuff very well. She's been around the cultivation block several times and loves to talk shop, which made editing this week's episode all the more difficult as it was hard to choose what to leave in and what to cut out. But that means that there may be some bonus material for our listeners down the road. I first asked Natalie about how she got started down the path of cannabis cultivation, and this was her response. Sure. So I started off as a cultivator. I actually still own a farm in in, uh, Northern California. And I came into the cannabis industry because I had a a really terrible accident where I fell out of a barn and broke my back. And I was supposed to go start working at a few law firms, uh, especially working in the field of prison abolition in California. And the injury was preventing me from being able to start that work. And I had a friend who was in the go trim on a cannabis farm and they invited me to come so I could just sit in a chair because that was about the most I could do at that point in time. And I completely fell in love with the process and the community and the social movement that was happening at that point in time, which was the very early 2000s in Northern California in the cannabis industry. So I ended up getting really involved in that network of farms and continued to uh, cultivate buying a farm and working in cannabis activism as well. And I switched to being a consultant about seven years ago um, when I started pursuing my master's degree in business with a concentration in wine business and basically started working with a bunch of cannabis firms that were in the nascent part of the industry and helping develop those companies and the executives there and the leadership teams to be prepared for the end turns of regulations into the cannabis industry. So I have worked with several wine companies as well. And I used to work um, in viticulture for a bit of time to sort of study grapevines as well as um, sustainable intensive farming. Because, you know, the, the, the grape industry, the wine industry is a lot more mature than the cannabis industry. And it was a really interesting experience to sort of look at how technology regulations come into place for wine and see how that might transpose to the cannabis industry. At this point, the lion's share of my work is in cannabis, but I still have touch points with people in the wine industry, as well as the restaurant industry. So I'm a, little, I'm a bit all over the place, but I like to keep things, you know, interesting. I'm much happier if I'm doing 20 different things at once than the same thing. So Natalie's journey was a bit of a happy accident by way of an actual unfortunate accident, and it was in part the social aspects of cultivating and processing cannabis that helped steer her to where she currently is. With respect to wine, it was through her interest in sustainable intensive farming that got her working in viticulture, which is rather not surprising given her personal background and the fact that both Oregon and Northern California are heavy grape-growing and wine-producing areas of the U.S., Now, you might think that these two are companion industries and that they perfectly complement each other. However, that is not the case. In fact, there is a considerable amount of conflict between the two, which I asked Natalie to explain. So there's definitely conflict around resources, and we're seeing this play out in a lot of different ways in Northern California. There's been um, an extreme pressure from natural disasters, such as massive flooding that just happened this last week, uh, fires taking out, you know, huge areas of Northern California and uh, scarcity of water. So the, the contention is really about land use and farming and regulations. So 
if a vineyard is using a ton of water um, and a cannabis farmer comes in and tries to start utilizing that same watershed, there is going to be some issues around that because the watersheds are, are fairly depleted already. And there are polluters on both sides, meaning there's polluters in the wine industry, there's polluters in the cannabis industry. And at this point, there's a regulatory body in the middle <clears throat> that is sort of trying to adjudicate these issues. But the wine industry is extremely consolidated in their lobbying efforts, and the cannabis industry is still trying to figure all of that out. So the wine industry has much fewer uh, regulations around water usage and inputs into watersheds than the cannabis industry does. So the way I usually describe that for the students is that cannabis is about to have the smallest footprint of any agricultural commodity in the United States with the largest amount of regulations. So essentially the regulators, the environmental uh, scientists who are working in a lot of these agencies, while I absolutely understand and appreciate their viewpoints. They are trying to institute a level of regulations that is sort of unprecedented and any other ag commodity in California has never been regulated by. And so it's really creating um, a lot of contention for the cannabis industry and that's sort of bleeding out as well into the wine industry. There are examples of the wine and, and weed world sort of coming together and discussing these uh, collaborative issues. But um, right now, everything's in a state of flux and we're not exactly sure the level of enforcement that's going to happen because it would require so many more resources on the behalf of the state. You know, there's not enough environmental scientists to go out and survey and study all these different cannabis farms um, to figure out what sanctions they're going to impose and how they're going to enforce this. And, you know, in the meantime, there's a lot of um, competition already in the wine world and one, another point that I try to make for people is that there's about 2,800 established wine brands in California. And just in a single county in Northern California, there probably, you know, might be 100,000 plus existing cannabis farms. Um, and so it's not going to be possible for there to be this many single entity brands within the cannabis world. So there's, you know, there's also what's being termed as an extinction event happening right now. And, and some of those pressures are, are coming from the wine industry on the cannabis industry. And it's, um, it's a definitely a very difficult time to be a cannabis farmer. It's difficult because we, we don't have a, a great census on how many cannabis farms there are, but a, a good way to look at this is, you know, in this very small town where my farm is, the population is supposedly around 2,000, even though it's much higher than that. And about 98% of people in that town are involved in the cannabis industry. And this is just a town that's two blocks long. So this is, um, you know, there aren't any hard figures on this, but the general estimate is that about 90% of the economy in a handful of counties in Northern California is completely driven by cannabis. So we might see a little conflict here along the lines of land use, regulations, and resources in Northern California. Natalie mentions that the wine industry has been established for quite some time now, which would explain why vintners have a greater lobby to work for them, and why the resulting regulations are relatively lax compared to cannabis, which ironically has the smallest agricultural footprint in the entire U.S., but the highest amount of regulations. 
So it seems quite unfair to treat one plant as if it were so potentially dangerous that without regulations the sky would fall, while another commodity has a relatively small amount of regulations, mainly because of lobbying efforts and political connections. Now it is understandable and in fact necessary to have regulations put on the cannabis industry. After all, those were the terms of the deal for legalizing cannabis in California in the first place, and this was the argument proponents said would help diminish the black market and protect consumers. But if you look at the land use, the resources available, and the overall effect on the environment of both industries, certain things don't seem to add up. Or maybe they do. The price for grapes in Northern California, at least for the higher-end varieties, averages between two and $3,000 per ton. In that same region, the price for cannabis, which has dropped significantly in the past few years following legalization, that averages around $1,000 per pound. Let me remind you that there are 2,000 pounds in one ton. I'll let you do the math to see which is more lucrative. And when you do so, you might understand the bone of contention between the two camps. Now, 100,000-plus cannabis farms in one particular region in the state seems like a lot, and it is. And with so many people already involved in this industry, it seems like coming up with sensible regulations would be a mere formality. However, when I asked Natalie about the number of licensed California cannabis growers, I was a little surprised to hear her response. The last estimate that I felt like had some sound research behind it was one half of 1%. That's right. Over 99% of California cannabis growers are unlicensed, essentially operating illegally, at least if adult-use commercial sales are the aim. This might become a bit of a problem, as the state may see a shortage of legal product due to high demand and low number of licensed operations. So if California is about legalization and operating in the open, why is the number of licensed growers so small, and who exactly are these farmers? I think it's it's important to look at these concepts of like what is the illicit or black market because these people, a lot of these farmers are small cottage, multi generational farming um, groups, right? Meaning like their parents were farmers and. They were involved in, you know, the the industry, the market that was available to them. And now that we have these regulations put into place, there are extremely prohibitive um, barriers to entry for them to even get licensed. And it's sort of debatable, you know, how much of this cannabis is being diverted, how much is going into the regulated market still. And, you know, most of the people who are licensed at this point are massive, massive corporations that have, you know, a huge pool of resources to, in order to push through and build some of the facilities that the state is requiring. And so the, the really sort of sad point of this is that when we started this regulatory process in California, the um, community, the regulators, everyone who was involved in the industry in theory, was promoting this concept of keeping the the cottage industry thriving in California, meaning keeping it available to small producers. And as such, there wasn't a cap put on the number of licenses. However, the the process to get a license has just become so onerous that most people are are not able to achieve it. And now we're looking at a, a space where what are we going to do with this 
with these particular economies? And is there a place for these people who have been involved in the industry for a long time? And there's there was already a pretty profound lack of um, resources and jobs in most of these areas as well. So it's going to be very interesting to see how most of this plays out. Um, my particular history in educational history in, in cannabis is not something I come across a lot. There's not a lot of people that I've worked with in the, um, in especially the, the cultivation communities that have pursued degrees and master's degrees. And I was lucky to be able to pivot, but um, a lot of these people might only have a high school education and have not been in the sort of uh, above ground regulated workforce. You know, they haven't filed taxes. They haven't done a lot of these things that allow you to kind of flow in and out of our society. There's also, you know, a lot of people who get involved in cultivation are anti-establishment, anti-authority, and have created these sort of intricate self-supporting communities. And they are at this point kind of being dismantled through the drop in prices, the glut of cannabis in the market, and they're the barriers for them to actually get into the regulated system. So somewhat unsurprisingly, it's the big corporations that are coming in, buying up land, and establishing their presence on the nascent cannabis market, leaving a lot of mom-and-pop operations on the outside looking in. We have a similar situation in Canada, where the number of licensed producers is also small with respect to demand, and a lot of operations are in large warehouses that are destined for the international export market. Canada has already experienced a shortage of legal herb, despite adult-use legalization. I asked Natalie what the situation was like in California, and whether legalization there has gone as smoothly as predicted. But um, the actual sort of tagline for the um, rollout of recreational or adult cannabis use in California is called the California Shit Show. So you'll, you'll see that sort of sentence or mantra a lot in and how this um, process is being portrayed in the media. Um, what's, what's interesting is that uh, we had very few examples to draw upon in California for what a market looks like or shifts to post uh, legalization of adult use. And the, the main market we could look at was Colorado. So Colorado you know, was the first state to legalize adult use of cannabis. This had explosive national media coverage. Colorado was already a place of where the economy was driven by tourism. It was extremely novel. They had way less people and existing producers to actually bring into a regulatory system. So <clears throat> there was, you know, in effect, a, a green rush like you're talking about in Colorado when adult use hit because they literally ran out of cannabis in their track and trace regulatory system. And so the cultivators that were licensed were able to command, you know, extremely high prices for their biomass, for their cannabis material that was going into the dispensaries. But over, you know, the last four years, we're seeing a, a sort of stagnation in sales in Colorado, as well as in some areas, a decline. That's because the novelty of it is perhaps waned a bit. And so we assumed this uh, sort of same trajectory erroneously in, in California. And what really happened is um, we already had a glut of cannabis existing, meaning there we, we reached this sort of interesting critical point in the economy of cannabis 
about two years ago where supply outpaced demand. And that started sending prices into a free fall, which is always what happens in economies, right? Everything mm-hmm. is sort of driven by supply and demand. So by the time we actually got to an adult use market in California, we had these, these, we already had too much cannabis. We already had huge producers that had, you know, sometimes upwards of seven acres under cultivation. And there hasn't been this sort of green rush like anyone's expected. In fact, what we're seeing is the exact opposite, what I've what I'm calling the extinction event. I'm not calling that like the general industry is calling this an extinction event in California concerning many people in the supply chain cannabis. So it's assumed that at least one out of every two existing producers is going to be out of business in the next year or two. So with that, there, there isn't um, these explosive profits happening. Um, And the people that are surviving this are really large corporations that have built into their business model, you know, a run rate and an ability to burn unbelievable amounts of cash because they have deposits of it, reserves of it, while Mm -hmm. this market stabilizes. Um, We expect it to take at least another five years for the regulatory process to get to a stability point, which is pretty fascinating. So Colorado was the example to follow. However, Colorado and California are vastly different in terms of not just population size and their respective economies, but also in terms of oversupply or production glut. Colorado seems to have taken the path of a well-prepared honors student, whereas California, which has had a growing culture for decades now, has to work out the mess that has been created over the years, though the current situation can also be attributed uh, to the overregulation and red tape. I asked Natalie what this would lead to if nothing changes. I personally, this is just a personal reflection on this. Um, I don't think that the state of California or even other states with um, an extreme glut of cannabis, another one would be Oregon where I live. Um, I don't think that they're looking at the impacts of what a disenfranchisement of an entire industry looks like in terms of impacts on um, social services and things like things like that. Um For example, if in Mendocino County, you know, where my farm is, if truly 90% of the economy is driven by cannabis and most people are going to not be able to enter into the regulated system, and if they're going to be forced to stop producing cannabis or be a part of the supply chain of cannabis, then we're looking at the um, extinction of also all the other ancillary service providers. Um, We're looking at huge issues for grocery stores, for banks, for school systems, right? So <clears throat> I'm not, I, I personally don't think that the regulators are, are, are actually examining the, the long range impacts of, of this process on the state and the state's infrastructure and systems. Based on what Natalie is saying, it seems the state as well as low level growers will have to make some tough decisions as far as the future of cannabis cultivation in California is concerned. I don't want to be doom and gloom about it, However, decades of prohibition and anti-cannabis propaganda have most certainly not helped the current situation, and a lot of the work going into the very young adult-use cannabis industry in California will focus on undoing the damage already done. 
No one said it was going to be an easy task, especially with the scope of things, particularly the size of California, its economy, and the national as well as international significance of it legalizing a very in-demand commodity. Given Natalie's experience and her level of knowledge on the subject, I was too tempted to ask her about the future of cannabis within the next decade, and this was her response. I think that CBD will be um, the gateway for people to be more open to consuming high THC cannabis, um, something that is sort of this... uh, something that's kind of driving me nuts right now in the industry is because I also work in the hemp industry is this concept that hemp is an entirely different plant than high THC cannabis. It absolutely isn't. It is just a specific genetic expression. It's just a particular genome that tends to produce cannabis with extremely low amounts of THC and higher amounts of other cannabinoids. So you know, I, I was actually speaking at a trade show last week, the largest trade show in the world, actually, that um, mainly is, you know, the clearinghouse where a lot of these CBD companies are selling their products to head shops and to other purveyors. It was fascinating to go and um, see how many different companies were there. The trade show was seven football fields long. It was crazy. Um, and when I spoke at this uh, trade show, one of the things I said is, the the conversion factor of a, a consumer going into a store and buying a CBD bath bomb, you know, those are like those little, yeah, yeah, they sell those here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that like you drop that in the bathtub, you get in the bathtub, you take the bath, you don't die. You're like, okay, <laughs> I didn't die. You know, maybe, maybe this isn't so scary. So when someone has an experience, they're going to be more open to trying the next thing, which might be a CBD topical right? Some sort of salve or lotion. They put that on themselves. They don't die. They're like, okay, then they're going to go and take the tinctures. And then they might be like, you know what? I really want to understand what this plant can do for me. And then they might go and convert and actually go go into a dispensary and buy cannabis and use market. So I think, you know, the future does look like the average American, and I think we can also extrapolate this to other parts of the world, being less afraid of what cannabis is and being more interested in entertaining the benefits of including it into their lifestyle. I think that federal descheduling, again, we need cannabis to be taken off of the schedule list. We don't need it rescheduled. We need it descheduled. I know that was probably hammered into you at Oaksterdam. I think federal descheduling will happen. Of course, it will. We're, we're sort of getting to that tipping point already where we have more states than not having some sort of cannabis regulatory system in place, even if it's extremely minimal and extremely ineffective medical system. So <clears throat> when we see the, you know, we're also seeing a lot of Gallup polls suggesting that more than 50% of Americans think that cannabis should absolutely be decriminalized. So we are at the tipping point. I do think it will be federally, you know, descheduled. I think it's going to be very hard for anyone to make sound predictions, even though some people are emphatically certain that this next presidential administration will deschedule it. I don't think we can really state that until we 
see what happens with Trump in office. <clears throat> if he somehow manages to get a second term, I don't see this as being a federal priority because I see so many other issues happening that are not going to allow Congress to spend a bunch of time trying to figure out how to do schedule cannabis because they're trying to figure out how to not have the country fall apart while Trump <laughs> is in office. <laughs> um, <laughs> if he does not pursue a second term, if uh, an extremely moderate Democrat ends up becoming president or a moderate Republican that is not Trump, I could see that happening. Um, so next five, 10 years, sure. Some maybe if we're saying 10 years, I think we'll have federal descheduling five years. I'm not going to be able to say yay or nay until we see what happens to Trump. And I think that we're going to see cannabis being much more part of the mainstream lifestyle in the United States and most likely a small to moderate decline in alcohol consumption. Why alcohol companies are getting so involved in cannabis is because in states like Colorado that have had a result system for many years, we are seeing a decline in alcohol sales. So, you know, these companies are profit driven. They're going to stay in the industry of making money. And so, um, we might see, again, more cannabis consumption, like increasing alcohol consumption, declining, and also a, a massive consolidation on a corporate level of the industry over time. The economics of cannabis is, is where we have to go. We have to understand this. We ha as an industry, we have to get involved in order to stay involved, essentially. That is my primary focus at this point. A ton of stuff to unpack in that last statement, and for every topic Natalie touches on, I have at least a dozen questions I could ask. Unfortunately, we are out of time in this week's episode, but feel free to submit questions or comments to our social media feeds to keep the conversation going. You can also find Natalie by going to the Oaksterdam University website or through her consulting firm www.cougaracres.com. Now we say farewell to our guest. Thank you, Natalie, for uh, speaking to me today. It was a uh, very exciting uh, and informative conversation, and uh, I wish you uh, all the best with uh, whatever projects you're working on in Oregon and uh, future classes at Oaksterdam. Thank you. That was episode 18 of the Critical Grass podcast. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to share with others. And if you want to continue the discussion on our social media platforms, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also available on iTunes and Spotify in case SoundCloud is not your jam. I wanted to wish everyone a happy, safe, and of course, lawful 420. Enjoy what you have and share if you can. My name, as usual, is Bogdan. I'll see everyone next week with another exciting guest. Until then, proceeds the Weedian, Nazareth. Enjoy the sleep reference. Peace. <laughs>